We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. God, you're good. Thank you for your word and your people and your spirits. Thank you for Grace and Lee and Mary and their faithfulness to advance the gospel. We pray for them, Lord, as they return from overseas. Would they be refreshed and energized in the gospel and in your people? Would you help us to refresh them and encourage them in the gospel? And would you bless the fruit of their labors? Would you stir up a harvest of salvation? Would people come to know the glory of the Trinity? Thank you for their faithfulness. So therefore, we wait for you to set in motion these timid first steps of our undertaking, to confirm it so that it may progress, and to call us into fellowship with the Spirit who guided the prophets and apostles, so that we may apprehend their words in no other sense than that in which they spoke them, and explain the proper meaning of the words according to the realities that they signify. For we shall be speaking of what they preached in mystery. Grant us, therefore, precision of words, light of understanding, honorable speech, and true faith. Enable us to believe that which we also speak, so that we may confess you one God our Father and one Lord Jesus Christ, as taught by the prophets and apostles. Amen. My task in this series seems like the hardest to me, though I'm sure most of them are difficult to, to put into a sermon. Though, to be fair, we are contemplating the Holy Trinity, so this should be somewhat difficult. My specific task in this series is to answer the question, how does God reveal himself as Trinity? How does God reveal himself as Trinity? Now, immediately, you may be overwhelmed with this sort of question, uh, because I'm sure some of you have friends or family who question your faith that you believe in one God, but also Jesus and also the Holy Spirit. And it seems somewhat contradictory. Now, there's a lot of confusion and misunderstandings that we hope to address in these coming weeks. So, on the one hand, this question, how does God reveal himself as Trinity, seems almost impossible because you feel like you have to have some sort of theology or Bible degree to answer this sort of question. Or there's just, there's just so much that it seems overwhelming. But hear me, on the other hand, the answer to this question is supremely basic. God reveals himself as Trinity in the gospel. The one God, creator of heaven and earth, sent his son, the light of men, to be our substitution for sins and give us life in him. And when our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, the life of God, the Holy Spirit was poured out onto those of faith in that one God's work of salvation. So the sermon will seek to uphold this tension of the overwhelming, transcendent grace that God has revealed himself as Trinity, and that we come to know him truly in the gospel. And this is because the Holy Trinity's revelation is organic to the scriptures. It's organic. In other words, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is not simply made up of a collection of verses or passages that you kind of pick together and then kind of throw in a, in a pot, mix together, and, and poof, there's the Trinity. No, a, that sort of approach, the literal approach, 
is incapable of perceiving the whole counsel of God. What we need is a faith that seeks to understand. Faith that seeks to understand the Holy Trinity requires us to read the Bible as a whole and with the whole church. <clears throat> so while in-depth studies of books or, or books or parts of the Bible are appropriate, we should always read them in light of the whole Bible because that's how God revealed himself. So what I pray to demonstrate this morning is that the principal object or the subject matter of the Bible is the Holy Trinity. He is the source, the subject, and the end of the scriptures. To do this, we'll briefly walk through Galatians 4, 4 through 7. And in there, I'll have five, five points concerning Trinity and Bible. Let me give you those five up front so that you can walk with me through them as we progress through this passage. The first is concerning our approach to understanding how the Trinity reveals himself. That approach is one of faith seeking to understand. Faith that seeks to understand God. That's our approach. Second, we need to know that there is a distinction between who God is in eternity, in himself, and the history of salvation. There's a distinction there that we need to make. Third, the New Testament writers interpret the one God of the Old Testament through the events of the Incarnation and Pentecost. They interpret the one God of the Old Testament through the events of the Incarnation and Pentecost. Fourth, then, the New Testament is our guide to contemplate the Holy Trinity in the Old Testament. We follow the New Testament. And finally, in my charges, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is the principal subject for the Christian. The principal subject. There is no other doctrine of more importance than the Holy Trinity, which is why we're spending seven weeks here, because he is the fountain of life, light, and love. He is our salvation. Okay, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul's letter to the Galatians is basically Paul telling them to stop being foolish and to live in their sonship as heirs through God. The problem, as it were, of Galatians, or the reason why Paul was, was writing to them, is numerous, there's a lot, but the basic point is that they were departing from Christ and his teachings. And in Galatians 3-4, through which our text is located, the whole point is that our salvation comes from outside of us, namely God himself. So as we, as, as we transition to chapter 4, Paul is concluding his remarks on the law, its purpose, and its fulfillment in Christ. And because Christ has fulfilled it, we are therefore heirs according to the promise of Abraham, that wondrous divine blessing. Before, we were like slaves, chained to the elements of this world and enemies of God. And now, in the fullness of time, we are an heir through God. So this, this text is speaking what it means and how it means that we are sons and heirs of God. Verse 4, in the fullness of time, 
God sent forth his son. The fullness of time here is referencing the incarnation primarily, right, when, when Christ came and took on flesh, but also speaks of our experience, our, our receiving knowledge of our adoption as children. Jesus, in Mark 1, 14 through 15, announces that the time is fulfilled, particularly the time is fulfilled because the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, Jesus has come to reveal God in the flesh and to be a ransom for sinners. In God's eternal and perfect will, it was predestined that the Father would send the Son such that we would be adopted as sons and that we would be given the Spirit as seal and confirmation of that adoption. See Ephesians 1. So our adoption into the Trinity is no happenstance or coincidence. Brothers and sisters, we are adopted. We are brought into the family as sons and daughters simply because of the ever-flowing life of the Holy Trinity. And particularly here in Galatians 4, Paul says that God's Son is sent and born. Sent and born. This is actually really important because it gives us clarification of both the origin of Christ and the manner of his coming. Being sent by the Father demonstrates the Son's preexistence. Because he was sent means that he was before he was born of woman. Because he was sent means that he was born before being sent. Um, means that he was before he was born. Remember Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, ancient days. And there in Mark 9.37, Jesus says that he was sent so that his people may receive the Father who sent him. Now, the next two weeks, we'll cover in, in great detail what this means of the sons being sent eternally. And we call this theologically um, eternal generation, eternal sending. But allow me to briefly say that Christ Jesus is one in essence, one in will, one in power, one in glory with the Father and Spirit. God, was, God the Son was sent to do the work of salvation because he is the one who is eternally begotten of the Father. Okay, verse 4. Born of woman, born under the law. Whereas the sent language referring to Christ's eternality, the birth language refers to the manner and the condition of the Son's incarnation. The manner of the incarnation is true humanity. He was born of woman. He entered the world the same way we did, ordinarily. And God the Son took on real flesh, real flesh in the person of Christ. And the condition of Christ's incarnation was under the law, but without sin. He then is our true representative, so true human and true representative. Christ was faithful to the whole law, even to the point of death, as our substitutionary representative. But it's important that we remember that Christ is one person in two natures. One person in two natures. This is what the Gospel of John declares and what Nicaea is, is trying to extrapolate. Christ both reveals the Trinity and is our substitute. And this brings me to my first two points regarding the Trinity and Bible. The subject of the Bible, the Holy Trinity, demands that we approach it in a faith that seeks to know God through faith in Christ by the illumination of the Spirit. And that there is a distinction between God's revelation of himself and who he is eternally. Now, 
What we need is a humble and, and prayerful posture towards this. And this type of posture helps us to see the importance of this creator and creature distinction and the nature of the history of salvation, the nature of how God has revealed himself. Scripture causes many joys for the Christian, but the subject matter stands above them all. It is the subject of Holy Scripture, the Holy Trinity, that we are corrected of evil, that we are fed, and that we are delighted. And <laughs> let us not forget that we are given this knowledge. It is a gift, this life-giving subject by grace through faith. The divine blessedness that, that, that we are given, and, and it causes preeminent gladness because the life of the Trinity it sinks down into our hearts, and it makes us happy. Listen to the words of Asaph in Psalm 73. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and portion forever. The one who is good in himself has descended to make himself known to those who are his enemies. And in his making known, he thereby causes us to participate in that eternal life. Nothing on his earth has the ability to give us this life. This is, it's, it's fading, it's fleeting. But God, who is life himself, is our portion forever. Now, Second point, the distinction here, I'm going to be brief, but we need to make this distinction between the eternal life of God in himself and the history of salvation. You can think about it like this. When we think about Christian theology, we can define it like this. God and all things in relation to God. God and all things in relation to God. So on the one side, you have God eternal, incomprehensible, triune, simple. On the other hand, we have everything else that was created. You, me, time, space, matter, the history of, of salvation. Our language about God was given. So what I want to give you is the fundamental principle that will be worked out throughout this series when thinking about the mystery of the Trinity. It is necessary not to conflate or confuse the history of salvation, God's revelation of himself, with the eternal life of God. Because if we do, we'll end up with a distorted and creaturely God. And put it like this. The history of salvation does not constitute the Holy Trinity. In other words, the Father does not become Father by his relation to us in Christ. The eternal life of God is necessary, right, since he is creator and fountain of life. Whereas the history of salvation is not. It's created. It's dependent. So we should not conflate the reality of the Trinity in himself with the human knowledge that we receive and experience. This is important for two reasons. One, we are limited creatures, right? Creatures that are limited. Receiving knowledge of our infinite creator. So by nature, our knowledge and language of God is going to be necessarily proportionate to who we are. So Calvin is famous for describing this as baby talk, right? When God reveals himself in his word, he's, it's like he's listening to us, talking to us as if we were babies. So our language of God 
is proportionate to who we are as creatures. Second, if the history of salvation exhausted, if there was no distinction, if it exhausted the eternal life of God, there would be no mystery. And God would not be God. Since God is perfect and incomprehensible in his beauty, our language of God is, is given to us by God, for God, by way of analogy. God reveals himself in the history of salvation to give us true access to him, but it's not a one-to-one correlation. Now, I'm, I'm flying through this, but let me assure you that we'll work this out in the next five weeks, I, I assure you. But the purpose of God's revelation of himself is our salvation. By the Spirit, we are illumined and enlightened to the beauty in the Son, to the blessedness of the Father. So in sum, the history of salvation reflects or reveals the Holy Trinity in truth, but not comprehensively. Now, why that long point on Galatians 4.4? Well, one, as we mentioned in the beginning, it's important to not read the Bible in a straight, literal way. Right? It's, it's incapable of perceiving the whole counsel of God. And this is simply not the nature of the Scriptures, because, one, it's a divine book, right? It's, it's divine revelation, but it also revealed throughout time, in many places, many times, and has many different literatures, genres. And so it would be intellectually dishonest of us to read Ecclesiastes the same way that we're reading Galatians here. They're parallels, but they're different. So we can't just simply read it in a straight, literal way. We must approach the Bible that reads it in faith that seeks understanding. The whole Bible, with the whole church, with our whole God. So when we read a text like Galatians 4, it says God sent forth his son, or a text like Mark 13, 32, where it says that only the Father knows the time when heaven and earth will pass away, or, like, or a text like Jesus' prayer in the garden, where he says, not my will, but yours be done. We need some sort of principles for contemplating the mystery of the Trinity, like the distinction between history of salvation and God and himself, or the one person, two natures of Christ. God is both, Jesus is both God and man. And thankfully, God has told us how to do that. He, he interprets himself through Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture because God interprets himself. That is, he reveals himself by giving himself in word and deed. Word and deed. Okay, verse 5. To redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What grandeur is our salvation in the Trinity? Because Christ was born under the law and without sin, he is the only one qualified to set sinners free from sin and death's tyranny. But not only did he set us free, he adopted us. Not only did he set us free by paying our debt, he brought us into the family. He didn't just come in and unshackle us and let us run free throughout the the world. No, he unshackled us and brought us into himself, into his house, and gave us a seat at his table. He gave us a seat at his table of communion where we taste and see that the Lord really is good. He really is good. And what great news this is for you and me, Christian. The gospel isn't good news that we are merely set free and then it's left up to us to upkeep our status as family members. Far from it, we are redeemed and adopted as sons, and the same Christ is interceding for you and I right now at the Father's right hand. 
So there's no need for you to wash up before coming to the Christ table of communion because he's already done that. He's already cleansed you. So come and feast and be grateful. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So how is it that we don't have to keep our status as family members? He tells us he's, he's given us his spirit. He sent his spirit of his son. God, the Holy Spirit, is the Lord and life giver who proceeds from the Father through the Son, who is worshiped and glorified together with the Father and Son. Whereas the Son's identity is revealed in the Incarnation, the Spirit's identity is revealed in Pentecost. That is, the coming of the Holy Spirit found in Acts to fill, empower, establish, and preserve Christ's church. And this brings me to my third, my, my third point, that the New Testament writers interpret the one God most high in the Old Testament through the events of the Incarnation and Pentecost. And as they interpret the one God through Incarnation and Pentecost, they formulate their confession through baptismal and doxological formulas. I know it's a lot. Let me explain. What the New Testament writers were being inspired to do was to articulate the way in which the missions of the Son and Spirit, Incarnation and Pentecost, reveal and relate the divine being itself. It might be helpful to think about it in terms of God leading us to his invisible triunity through his visible acts in salvation history. As Paul said in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come. And the Son's being sent by the Father to procure salvation for us and the Spirit's descent on Christ and his being poured out on us to know and worship God, the invisible is made visible. And let this be a word of worship for you, that the God who is life in and of himself has given himself to us in the person of the Holy Spirit who unites us to the person of the Son. And this is, this is the staggering point. It is only a God who needs nothing can give everything. And contemplate that, brother and sister, in Christ by the Spirit. God has given you everything that he is. And has given you everything that you need. And yet, he still lacks nothing. He still lacks nothing. So no wonder the psalmist in Psalm 34 can, can really say that those who take refuge in him lack no good thing because he lacks no good thing. As a result of the visible revealing the invisible, the New Testament writers construct Trinitarian formulas of God's personal names, such as in the baptismal and doxology. One theologian says this, that God's name discloses his personal character. It is therefore the distinguishing mark by which he blesses his people and by which they bless him. So he gives his name to bless them, and that name by which they, he blesses them is the name by which they bless him. The baptismal text, on the one hand, identifies the equality of divinity, the personal distinction, and the unity of the Holy Trinity. And on the other hand, it tells us what sort of one God we are participating in, that we are baptized into. Remember Matthew's words, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They're not three gods or even three parts of God, 
Rather, there is one God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and he exists eternally in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This demonstrates what we've been discussing all along. No one knows the Father except the Son, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except the Holy Spirit, except in the Holy Spirit. God discloses himself in triune naming fashion. So our salvation is the Holy Trinity, revealed by the Holy Trinity. And likewise, with, with doxological formulas, we are told of the way in which our salvation is accomplished. Second Corinthians 13, 14, you might, have, you might remember this from our uh, benedictions. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There are other passages like that, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. And here we, we come full circle to approaching and, and reading the scriptures in light of the Trinity. Our, our path of knowing, our experience of knowing the Trinity is from the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. The doxological formulas then articulate this sort of mediatorial access that we have in the blessed life of the Trinity. We are adopted as heirs, and we commune with the Trinity through the grace of Christ, in the love of God, and by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Um, Basil of Caesarea, church father in the 4th century, puts it like this. I think this is powerful. If we are illumined by divine power and fix our eyes on the beauty of the image of the invisible God, and through the image are led up to the indescribable beauty of its source, it is because we have been inseparably joined to the spirit of knowledge. He gives those who love the vision of truth the power which enables them to see the image. And this power that he gives is himself. He does not reveal it to them from outside sources, but leads them to knowledge personally. So this brings me to my fourth point, that the New Testament is our guide as we contemplate the Holy Trinity in the Old Testament. Now, there are several ways to think about this, but for the sake of time, I want to mention how the New Testament writers demonstrate how we are to understand the uh, somewhat unclear and odd text of the Old Testament where we see multiple speakers present. For example, Genesis 1, 1 through 26 can be read in light of John 1 through 14. Or Psalm 2 with Hebrews 1. Remember back in our Advent series, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 was, was covered. Psalm 110 and Isaiah 49.3 with Mark 12, 35 through 37. Or Micah 5, 2 through 4 with Micah, or Matthew 2.15 and Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Or Isaiah 48, 12 through 16 with our text here in Galatians 4. Where the Old Testament designates speakers as, as sort of literary personifications, like word and wisdom, power and spirit, the New Testament reveals and identifies them as God's eternal Son and Spirit. Though the New Testament does not realize or does not utilize the term person to describe the Father, Son, and Spirit, it does exercise identifying the speakers as persons. Let me say that again. The New Testament does not utilize the term person to describe the Father, Son, and Spirit, but it does exercise identifying the speakers as persons. Another theologian put it this way, Scripture portrays God as a sovereign king who speaks the world into existence by his sovereign word and spirit, Psalm 33. Scripture portrays God as father who sends his beloved son on a mission to gather the fruits of his vineyard, Mark 12. And Scripture portrays God as redeemer who sends his spirit to give life and adoption, Galatians 4. 
Let me mention one brief example from Isaiah 48 of, of, of this sort of person-speaker um, interpretation the New Testament's doing. It's Isaiah 48, 12 through 16. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I have called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand lay the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among you has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me and hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Now, let me be clear, Paul is not directly commenting on Isaiah 48 here in Galatians 4, but it does serve an important point to the New Testament's use of the speaker-person speaker interpretation. Just who is speaking in Isaiah 48? There are obviously two speakers. I mean, look at verse 16. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. End quote. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Now, this passage should be considered in light of the other, what's called servant song pa uh, passages in Isaiah, right? Isaiah 42, 49, 50, 52 through 53, 61. You're probably familiar with Isaiah 53. Now, scholars have debated just who is talking here. It could be Cyrus, uh, or the, the Lord speaking of Cyrus, or it could be another servant. But the view I take, I believe is best, is that you're reading Trinitarian speakers of the Father and Son with reference to the Holy Spirit. Because the Son is the one who is sent by the Father in the fullness of time. Because he is eternally generated by the Father. And likewise, the Spirit is also sent because he eternally proceeds from the Father through the Son. Now, clearly, the Old Testament does not reveal the Trinity in the same manner as the New. That's, that's, that's a no-brainer. But we must remember that in, human, in our experience of it, Right? Divine revelation occurred across time. You may have heard this phrased as progressive revelation, that God has progressively revealed himself. And this is what Galatians 4 is really getting after, right? Through the incarnation and Pentecost, we explain the divine realities that the words and events signify. Through the incarnation and Pentecost, we explain the divine realities that the words and events signify. Let me give a helpful, helpful metaphor from B.B. Warfield. Pastor Ronnie would be proud of me for mentioning B.B. Warfield here. He gives a helpful metaphor for the Trinity in the Old Testament. Metaphor is we walk into a dimly lit room where we can barely make out the scope of the room and the furniture. We, we don't know what we're seeing. We can't see anything. We have no idea what the furniture is. But over time, unbeknownst to us, the room begins to get brighter such that you can actually see the scope of the room and the furniture therein. So in the same way, the Old Testament is dimly lit, or even dark to us. But with Christ's incarnation and the spirits being poured out, we're able to see that God did not simply become triune in the incarnation and Pentecost. He has always been so, eternally, as Father, Son, and Spirit. What is different is our salvation. We become Christians. 
This is another way of stating what we've already been saying. In our redemption, we receive true revelation of the Holy Trinity. And with that revelation, we have redemption in him. So this gives even more substance to the faithfulness of God to his promises in the Old Testament. He wasn't merely keeping his word, though he was doing that, but he kept his word by giving us himself. He didn't send a proxy. He didn't send a substitute. He sent himself for us. Okay, our final verse, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Our salvation is Trinitarian through and through. By the Spirit, we are illumined to the glory of the Son to whom we are united. And because of the Son who is sent of God, born of woman, born under the law, we are redeemed and adopted as sons in the love and security of the Father. This Trinitarian salvation, it will not bend, it will not break, and it will not budge. You are secure in the eternal communion of the Holy Trinity. Final points, my pastoral charges. First one is to the non-Christian. Second two, next two are the the Christians. Non-Christians, that is, those who cannot say that you know the Trinity through the revelation of the Trinity. Let Let me implore you to cry out to God to reveal himself to you in word and spirit. As you stand right now, you have... No refuge. You do not have God as your refuge. Your refuge is yourself, and as we've seen, that's going to crumble very quickly. And you lack every good thing. You remain in the kingdom of darkness, enslaved to sin and death's tyranny. But hear this, friend. Hear this. There is eternal hope in the perfect life of God. Eternal hope in the perfect life of God. Call out to him, and the Spirit will show you the glory of the Father, the Son, Spirit. Second, Christian, take heart in the perfect life of God. The Holy Trinity has revealed his invisible glory in the visible events of the Incarnation and Pentecost. As I mentioned in the beginning, this all may seem overwhelming or even unnecessary, but let me charge you to to set aside these hesitations for a moment and simply consider how grand and how wondrous and how perfect your God Most High is. Without revealing himself, we have no life. We have no refuge. We lack every good thing. So it is right and good that we spend considerable amount of time, seven weeks, on the blessed life of the Trinity because he is our salvation. If we get Trinitarian doctrine wrong, all else crumbles. In other words, these words matter that we're going over because of who they signify. They matter because of who they signify. So the most practical thing we can do is to contemplate worship, and be grateful of our triune God. Be grateful of his revelation. Be grateful of our salvation. Finally, press in to grow in your knowledge of God through communion with the Trinity. And this is Paul's prayer in, uh, at the beginning of Colossians, right? He prays and then he grounds this prayer. In verse 13, he says, because or for, they have been trans- because they have been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son, They are well-equipped. They are more than equipped to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You are equipped, Christian, because you are adopted as sons and daughters to walk in a manner of the word. And remember that your adoption is not merely individualistic. You have been adopted into a big and messy family. 
that God has given you as a gift. Your brothers and sisters are a gift to you. So part of the manner in which you commune with the Trinity is through his three gifts, his word, his spirit, and his people. And what better way to think about communion with the Trinity than the Lord's table? As we do every week, we come to the table to partake of Christ's meal, his body and blood shed for us. The bread signifies the body of Christ broken for us, and the cup signifies the blood that was shed for us. This meal is for those adopted by the Trinity as heirs and participants in the life of God. So, if you're not a Christian, if you're not adopted by God, let me ask you to, to stay in your seat, as awkward as that is, and, and, and honestly pray into God to adopt you as heir. Honestly pray. And even more so, ask any one of those who come to partake of this meal what it means to be adopted by God. How wondrous it is. So if you're a Christian, after I pray, please exit to your, to your right. You'll receive some hand sanitizer, and you'll be given a bread and a cup. And we do have gluten-free options if that is the case. So let me pray. Holy Trinity, thank you for revealing yourself. It just causes me to some, sometimes just, just sit back in, in silence and wonder of how grand you are, how kind you are, how gracious and merciful you are to the sinners. Despite us as enemies, you give us yourself. So help us, help us, Lord, to remember these things, to glory in these things, and to glory in these things with one another. in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com.